I invite you to join me in a word of prayer, and this morning I'm going to borrow words from Psalm 119 as I pray. O Lord, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law, and make us understand the way of your precepts, and we will meditate on your wondrous works. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So as our bishop preached last week about getting to the foothills of Mount Sinai, uh, we now are receiving the Ten Commandments this morning. That's the section of Exodus we're in. And the Ten Commandments are probably, arguably, one of the most famous parts of the Old Testament. If you were to just go out into the general American public and ask somebody, can you name, non-Christians, can you name something that is in the Old Testament of the Bible, there's a good chance they might say the Ten Commandments, I think. Or they might say something about Moses or whatever. The Ten Commandments are very famous. They're published, printed, put up on plaques. They're hanging in courthouses and public schoolrooms. And if that wasn't enough to make them famous, the lawsuits to try to get them off of public courthouses and public places has made them even more famous. And so they are well known. Even the title of the, the uh, Cecil B. DeMille's um, movie about basically the Exodus and Moses is titled the Ten Commandments. It was about a lot more than that, but that's the title of it. And I wonder this morning, can you name them in order? If I was to say, pop quiz, take out a piece of paper, close your Bible, write the Ten Commandments in order, could you do it? How many of them could you get? Might be a worthwhile exercise um, because they are still bearing upon us today, which I'll get to in a minute. But there are two kinds of law, or uh, there's quite a bit of different types of law, but the Ten Commandments are a little bit unique. You'll notice if you're reading through Exodus that there's this list of 10, and then there's a whole lot of other instruction. So the, the, the technical word that the scholars talk about is apodictic, which means that these laws are clear beyond dispute, they're conclusive, they function like a paradigm. And what follows then is case law, a whole bunch of if-then situations to know how that bigger idea plays itself out. So there's a little bit of a difference there. These are kind of absolute. And the 10 start out with God is the only God. I'm, I'm the Lord your God. Have no other gods before me. Or the footnote says besides me, in addition to, more important to, or even sub, subservient to. One God. There's one God. And he, he acknowledges in the way it's worded, there can be lots of gods. I mean, even Jesus talks about money, mammon. You cannot serve both mammon, God and mammon. It has God-like qualities to it. So anything that we put in the place of God is a kind of idolatry. And the first one comes right out and says, God is expecting an undivided heart. Not just because he alone is worthy of our worship, we were made to worship him and only him. And that's when we work best. The second one is about making idols, making things and then worshiping the thing. So kind of like in a vicarious type of worship. Now God doesn't forbid images and things. In fact, the... um, the Ten Commandments, the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle had all kinds of symbols and different things in it. The distinction is we don't worship the cross. We don't worship the Bible. We don't worship the sacraments or the communion table. They're helpful, but we worship God. And that's the distinction of the second commandment. The third one about taking his name in vain is about getting his character right and honoring him. A person's name speaks of who they are. And if we misrepresent his name, we are misrepresenting him to the world. The fourth one doesn't say it in Exodus 20, but it does in the Deuteronomy 5 passage. That's the one about Sabbath. 
you were slaves in Egypt, and I have rescued you out of slavery. You are now free people. You are sons and daughters of the king. You're no longer slaves, so don't work seven days. I worked six days and made everything and rested on the seventh. You need to rest as well. It's about freedom and goodness. Then, so those first four tend to be more vertical, our relationship directly to God. The, the latter six tend to be about horizontal, although the next one is honor your father and mother. You could say our heavenly father and make sort of a connection or a bridge between the two. But that's about family. It's about honoring the generation before us. It's about the wholeness of the household, the building block of society, honoring your father and mother. It doesn't say obey, though, because sometimes fathers and mothers will not be believers, and they'll ask you to do things that are contrary to what a Christian should do. You can honor them, but not obey them in those things. But honor your father and mother. Then it gets into murder, which is about not only not taking life, but you can find with these types of laws, there, when you start looking into the case law, it's not, don't just not murder, also uphold life. Also cherish it, value it. So as you look into the case law, you see it's about life in general. God is the God of life. And then you get into adultery. Again, this is about the generations. If honoring your father and mother is about the generation that's come before, not committing adultery is about the holistic household and the generations that come after, and honoring the marriage covenant, and then building up the family and the society going down through the next generations. Stealing is about private property. Lying is about justice. We don't want, you know, false testimony, and it's using the courtroom metaphor here about bearing witness, giving a testimony. Don't, don't lie. And then coveting is about a heart thing. I think it's interesting that these, these laws are bookended by heart issues. The first one is you can only have one God. And our hearts, as John Calvin said, are idol factories, and we are tempted to worship everything. The option is not, there's no third option. You know, I'm the Lord your God, have no other gods but me. So you could have other gods or you could have God, but, but there's not an option of worshiping nothing because we are worshipers. We will worship something, and the question is, what's going on in our heart? The last one is about a heart issue, too, coveting. So these laws are pretty, they're comprehensive and not at all exhaustive, and you've got to get into the case law to figure out how does this play itself out. As, as you read through, you start to see that. Now, right away at the, at the start, I want to say this. This is not a list of requirements to get into heaven or the good place or to um, please God to have a relationship with him. That is not what these are. This is not a to-do list. This is something far bigger, and the preamble tells us this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That preamble is about grace. And don't fall into the, the error of thinking the Old Testament is about law, the New Testament is about grace. No, no, grace runs all the way through the scriptures. The Trinity is a God of grace. And so he's saved them out of slavery. He's provided, as we've been seeing in the prior weeks, a miraculous parting of the Red Sea, a defeating of, his, of their enemies, a providing manna, water, quail in the camp, of manifesting his guidance and presence with a pillar of fire and cloud, leading them all the way through, and now comes the law. So don't ever get that backwards. The law always follows grace. It's not given so that you can get grace. You are saved by grace while you are yet God's enemy. It says, while we are yet God's enemy, Christ died for us. Grace always comes first. And then he says, now, here's how to live in this grace. 
and the law comes to us. And I want to point out that it, it's, the law is good. It's not a bad thing. This is Psalm 119 is the longest psalm, and it's an acrostic using the entire Hebrew alphabet. And if you look in your Bible, usually they, they, they transliterate the, the name of the Hebrew letter at the head of each paragraph. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, He, Vav. It goes all the way down through the, the Hebrew alphabet. And if you could see it in Hebrew, the first letter of each stanza, each section, is that letter all the way through. It does the entire alphabet to make the point, the law is good. Let me just read a couple. The law of the Lord, this, and this, I'm going to Psalm 19 on this one. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. The psalmists acknowledge that God's law is good. It is good for us. And, the, and that other psalm, Psalm 119, the whole thing just is, it's more like Psalm 19. It's just a whole lot of that about hearing his precepts and cherishing them and meditating on them and memorizing them and being a person of God's law. Now, I want to say this is still in play for us today. And Jesus, you know, famously said in his Sermon on the Mount, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, but rather to fulfill them. And then he makes the point that not a single iota or dot, the smallest grammatical marks of Greek, not a single little dot will pass away until it's all accomplished. So heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word, his law, will remain. It's going to remain. That means it's in place right now. Now, I'm grateful for this little book called not, not called Anglican Catechism. It's called To Be a Christian. And that says an Anglican Catechism, which plug for the class starts on Tuesday night, six weeks in November as we look through this. But this is a phenomenal resource to all Christians, not just Anglicans. And it deals with the Ten Commandments at one point. And question number 264 says this, how should you understand the Ten Commandments? I should understand them as God's righteous rules for life in his kingdom. Basic standards for, for loving God and my neighbor. In upholding them, I bear witness with the church to God's righteousness and his will for a just society. So the Ten Commandments show us what life is like in the kingdom of God. And I ask the question, do you want that? We pray, thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you want it? Do you want it in your life? Do you want to become the kind of person who does these things, not because you're supposed to, but because it's actually who God has made you to be, and it will flow out of you naturally? It's not some kind of external righteousness that's pasted onto you. It's something that flows out of the center of you. And where God is going is his, this is how the future, for all who believe in him, this is the future. The world will eventually look like this. There will be none of the bad things and all of the good things. This is where we're headed. God is making this happen, and his kingdom is available. Jesus said, repent, the kingdom of God, repent and believe in me, the kingdom of God is at hand. So it's now available to those who want it through Christ and a new covenant, 
but there are many who still resist it. And so we live in this world that's mixed, it's broken. Now let's go to the specific thing here because it's helpful to recognize that God is enacting a covenant with a people. He's not just giving laws to a new nation. He's actually engaging in a covenant agreement with them, with a people. In fact, that's why the the box with the angels and the poles is called the Ark of the Covenant. It's the box of the covenant. It's not the Ark of the Ten Rules. It's the, it, it, that picks up the whole idea that this is a covenant God has made with people. And Christ is going to take that teaching and he's going to expand it and renew it and make a new covenant as he fulfills the old covenant in our stead, on our part, because we couldn't do it. We couldn't live up to our end of the deal. But I get ahead of myself. Let's go to, let's go to Mount Sinai here in Exodus 20. But before, before we look at what happens in Exodus 20, I'm going to just back up to chapter 3 and read something from Exodus 3. We, we saw this weeks ago. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. That's another name for Sinai, synonyms. Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. So Moses, as a shepherd, tending his flocks, leads them and comes to this mountain, and it's where the burning bush happens, right there. And you know the dialogue, we looked at it a couple weeks ago, the dialogue of, I'm going to call you to lead my people out of Egypt, and he has all these uh, objections, and one is, you know, how will I know? And God gives him a sign. It's in verse 12. In verse 12, he says, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, to Moses, that's not a useful sign. I want a sign before the thing happens so I feel confident. God's giving him a sign that after you'll look back and go, oh, right, that was me. But that's not what Moses wants. But it's helpful for us to recognize it's the same place. God introduced himself to Moses through a bush that was on fire and it wasn't being consumed because God himself is an all-consuming fire. He doesn't need the fuel of the tree to sustain his life. Same thing happens now on the mountain. God has initiated covenants with individuals And all people are benefited by them. Like with Noah, he made a covenant, a promise that he'll never flood the earth. Abraham, through your offspring, all the peoples will be blessed. I'll make you a great nation. That covenant is renewed with Isaac and Jacob, but it's always with an individual. Something different is happening here. He's rescued the people who were a disparate group of slaves, and he's made them into a nation, an ethnic nation. They're now the Israelites. But now he's making a covenant directly with them not even with Moses for them. And it's interesting how this goes down. Whereas the fire was in the bush and it was a little frightening to Moses, now the mountain is on fire. And, and it says, um, I mean, there's two, two verses. I'm gonna back up to 19, verse, chapter 19, verse 16. It says, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Now it goes on and describes what happens here. And then a little later in chapter 20, after the Ten Commandments, in verse 22, it says, the Lord said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. Now a little later, they say to Moses, That was the scariest thing we've ever experienced. If it happens again, we will die. 
Moses, you go and talk to God for us, and you relate to us what he says. And God agrees. They're right. So Moses, you're going to be this mediator. But here, at this moment of covenant, God has shown up directly to the people, and he said, I've delivered you out of slavery. I'm your God. You will be my people. And he's enacting a covenant with them. Now, this is picking up, as the scholars point out, a pattern that is common in that time in the, in the, near, the ancient Near East, where it's, a, it's, it's referred to as a, a suzerain-vassal covenant. <clears throat> the suzerain is the conquering king, <clears throat> and the vassal is the people who now are coming under his rule. And there's a pattern, especially in the Hittite nation, of how it works. The, the, the conquering king would say his name, say what he's done, <clears throat> then say what he expects of the people he's conquered and is now leading, and then he says what the blessings or curses will be for obedience or disobedience. It also stipulates how the covenant is supposed to be kept and how often it's going to be read. All of that is laid out <clears throat> in the Pentateuch. So consider the pattern. I am Yahweh, your God. The suzerain says who he is, and he says what he's done. I've delivered you out of slavery, out of Egypt, and he says what I want you to do. Have no other gods. Don't make idols to worship. Keep my name, honor my name. Keep the Sabbath. And he goes through all 10, and he lays out this covenant for them, and they agree this is good. If you read further, Moses comes down with two tablets, debatable, but probably two copies of the covenant, one for each party. But, you know, God doesn't need his copies, so both go into the Ark of the Covenant. It's, it's this contract, and it's stipulated. You're going to read this. The king needs to read a copy when you have a king. You're going to pass it on to your generations. The whole thing about how it works. And then there's the section of blessings and curses in Deuteronomy. And there's like one section on blessings for obedience, and there's a much bigger two sections on curses for disobedience, indicative of where we're headed, right? The people are not going to be obedient. We've already seen it, the grumbling all the way through. We know we have a problem. We still have a problem. You know, it's funny, we had a sign out there on the sidewalk this week that said, please do not use the sidewalk. And there was caution tape around the pavilion columns. Brilliant sign, by the way, because you read it and you go, ooh, caution, don't use the sidewalk. Look at those big things standing up. They might fall down on me and kill me. Self-interest, I won't go there. But what the sign really meant was, don't walk down here because there's wet concrete and we don't want you to leave a footprint or an initial in it. Right? If there was a sign that said, do not write in our new concrete, what does the human heart want to do right away? <laughs> right? That's our problem. I'm looking for a stick to scratch MJM into the concrete for the, for the centuries. That's what our problem is. And you say, but what about the rule keepers? Okay, very good observation. There are some people who see rules and they instinctively want to keep them. Not everybody's like that. Some instinctively want to break them, but some instinctively want to keep them. And for this, I want to go to the idea of true verse, virtue versus common virtue. Jonathan Edwards wrote a, a paper called The Nature of True Virtue. And he was making the point that I started with, which is God initiated covenants with people to make a virtuous people for himself and as a light to the world. Truly virtuous people, people who in their heart love God's law, and they do it joyfully. But common virtue is motivated by self-interest. Think about why somebody obeys the law. Either I don't want to go to jail. That's fear, right? I'm not going to speed because I don't want to pay the fine. I'm not going to steal because I don't want to, you know, whatever, get into a fight with the person I'm stealing from or be taken to court. Or pride. 
I'm going to do good things for the poor so that you will think well of me, so that I will feel good about myself. I'm not going to hurt someone else because I feel bad when I hurt someone else. But who's at the center of that common virtue? Me. I'm doing it out of either pride or fear. And don't get me wrong, I'm so thankful for common virtue in our world. Because if that stuff didn't happen, as scary as the world is now, it would be even worse. It would be so much worse. And yet, the problem with common virtue is the more you live into it, the more you're building yourself up, either in fear or pride. You're getting stronger in the wrong thing. Self is the center of your life. But what God is doing is something very different. And Jesus came down hard on the Pharisees. They had the external virtues. They looked good, but he called them whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they're painted nice and white. On the inside, they're full of dead bodies and decay, and they're, they're nasty. And he said all kinds of things to them. In fact, in that passage where he said he's come to fulfill the law, it goes on further, and he says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. These were the most externally righteous people of the day. And he's saying that's not what the kingdom of heaven is about. Your righteousness has to exceed that if you're going to live in the kingdom. It's going to be a different kind of righteousness. It's going to be a true virtue, not this common virtue that's motivated by, in the Pharisees' case, pride. They wanted to look good. They were lovers of money. The, um, Matthew 23 has all these woes. At one point he says, listen to what the Pharisees teach you and the scribes, for they sit on the seat of Moses. What they're saying is right. Just don't do what they do. They're not practicing what they're preaching. So don't look at their lives. Listen to their words. Live that way. But don't, do, don't be like them. Your righteousness has to exceed theirs. Now, this is this is hard, right? How can, how can we do this? People read the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus took God's law and then he raised it. He said, you've heard it said, don't murder. I'm telling you that it's not even good to be angry, to have a lustful thought. He goes into all these different expansions of what the heart of the law is. And he says, be perfect. That's the standard. That's what, he's, that's what he intends to do. See, God is initiating a covenant with people to make a truly virtuous people. Now, here's where the good news comes in. This is going to be fulfilled in Jesus and was. So again, back to the catechism. Question 261 says this. How did Jesus fulfill God's law? He fulfilled it, um, he, got, he fulfilled it by teaching it perfectly, submitting it to it wholly, and dying as an atoning sacrifice for our, our disobedience. He did that. Now, the next question says, how can I obey God's law? As I trust in Jesus' fulfillment of the law for me, I live in the power of the Holy Spirit. God grants me grace to love and obey his law. The new covenant in Jesus is the good news of the gospel. And check this out. There's pride and fear that motivate common virtue. The true virtue that comes through the gospel deals with both pride and fear. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law because we couldn't. And then he died on a cross for us because we couldn't. He paid our price. So when I look at the cross, if I'm proud, all of a sudden I realize, whoa, my sin was so bad, that was the solution. Pride is shot to the ground. Humility is all that's left. I'm humbled by that. But I'm not despairing or left in fear because I realize the love of God is so great that he was willing to do that. So now I'm built up from fear and from weakness, and I realize I'm incredibly loved. I'm loved that much, and yet 
I'm humbled by that much. Both of those things deal with pride. That, 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 the cross and Jesus' death and resurrection deal with both of those things, pride and fear. And now what happens is a, a true virtue can come forward out of love. God loves us, and now he's inviting us in response to come and learn his ways, to ask for his spirit, to focus on what Jesus has done for us. And what will happen is you will be transformed. You will actually become the kind of person who loves God's law. At first, you will want it, even though you're not able to do it. And then like a child learning to crawl and then walk and then run, over time, you will grow. You will grow to start instinctively doing the things that you could never do before. Not because of you, because of what God is doing in you. And so here's the application to this. In addition to knowing God's law and the importance of the covenant and focusing on what Jesus has done, Attend to the heart issues that are coming up, oftentimes seen in your emotions, when you explode in anger, when you're torn by lust or greed, when you are feeling proud, whatever, whatever, whatever's happening, take that to the Lord and say, God, what's going on in my heart here? I need your help. I need healing on this thing. Help me walk in your ways. And he'll, he will. He will it, but it will take a long time. We live for Jesus alone, and we keep going to him with our heart. That song that we sang was perfect. Here's my heart, Lord. I, just, I give it to you because you've got to fix it. It's broken and I don't have the strength. And he does. And the gospel is what does it. It takes away pride. It takes away fear. And in place, we start to get the true virtue. And that's where we're headed. That's what the kingdom of God will be perfected to be like eventually. There will be only virtuous people there because God has made them. Thanks be to God for his law and for his son. Let's pray. Lord, I am grateful for the goodness of your law and your ways. And on behalf of all of us, I pray that you would help us to want your laws and even to want to want your laws if that's where we are. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and show us the goodness of your kingdom. Lord, may we never be satisfied in the idols of our lives. Bring them to our attention quickly that we can give them up and give you alone our worship. For that's what sustains us and that's what you deserve. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.